All right, so you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. As Chris mentioned, we're going to start the series through the book of Acts this morning. And you can find the book of Acts on page 909 if you're using the Bible in the pew. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And um, the series is entitled To Be Continued. So it's got kind of a double meaning, um, if it's not obvious to you already. So if you're, if you're familiar with the New Testament, maybe you know that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. So Luke is volume one, the gospel according to Luke, and Acts is volume two. So in a sense, it's the work of Jesus continued, to be continued. But also, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that the book ends abruptly. Chapter 28. What's that all about? There's no, like, kind of neat conclusion at the end. Do they just kind of lose the, the end of the book, or what's going on? Well, I think it's intentional that it's cut off abruptly because the work needs to be continued. We all are living, in a sense, in Acts 29. We are to continue the work that was begun in the early church by the power of the gospel, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this work, the spread of the gospel, is to be continued. So it's not just about a history lesson of, you know, volume one to volume two. It's this is for us. This mission is for us to carry on and continue. So why this series? Why the book of Acts? Well, I mean, at one level, we always go Old Testament book, New Testament book. You know, we're up for the New Testament. We haven't done this book. It's not just that. So I read uh, a quote, I think it was earlier this week, by a guy I've never heard of before. It doesn't matter who it is, but just listen to this quote. The nature of the enemy's warfare in your life is to cause you to become discouraged and to cast away your confidence. Not that you would necessarily discard your salvation, but you could give up your hope of God's deliverance. The enemy wants to numb you into a coping kind of Christianity that has given up hope of seeing God's resurrection power. Anybody ever experienced kind of falling into that pattern? Like, we don't want to just operate kind of status quo, chugging along, making the widgets, and then we die. Anybody want to just do that? We need, as Jesus' people, his disciples, to seek first the kingdom. And we need to be reminded to seek first the kingdom. It's really easy. Our hearts are kind of like spring-loaded to go after other things first. And we need, we need, we need the Spirit's filling and empowerment to do so. We need to be called again and again and empowered again and again to be Christ's witnesses near and far. And also, we'll see in the book of Acts over and over again, we see threats and obstacles and challenges and how God overcomes those things. He did it for them. He can do it for us. The word is unstoppable. Our King Jesus is unstoppable. The spread of the gospel ultimately is unstoppable. And we need to see 
the word, overcoming the obstacles and threats to the spread of the gospel in our own lives, in our spheres of relationship and influence, and around the world. And as a church, we need leading and guidance for our church and our participation. So this is individual, but it's also corporate. Our participation in God's mission for the next 10 years and beyond. Like, may the Lord do things during this series that will impact here and around the world for decades to come. Does anybody want to pray along with me along those lines? Please do. So, here we go. Let's dive in. Um, we've got five points this morning. The sequel, the kingdom, the power, the purpose, and the question. All right, first, first 11 verses of chapter 1. So I'll read the verses, and then we'll dive in. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after, many, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, let's dive in. First point, the sequel, verses one and two. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So if you're familiar with the beginning of the first of Luke's books, you know that Luke's gospel account was dedicated to this guy, Theophilus. Theophilus means friend of God or loved, like loved by God, beloved of God, okay? So this guy must have been a man of some standing, um, perhaps political authority. Um, in Luke's intro to the gospel, Luke 1, 1-4, you can look at it later, um, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus, kind of like your excellency, okay? That phrase, um, excellent, is used of Governor Felix in Acts 23 and his successor, Governor Festus, in Acts 26. So this Theophilus guy must have had some um, status and authority in some context. Now, do you notice what, Jesus, what Luke writes in verse 1? I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in my first book. So what's the implication as he starts the second book? <clears throat> that the Acts 
that this book is about the, what, continued work of Jesus, right? Jesus began to do and teach in Luke. He's going, I'm going to tell you about what he continues to do and teach in the book of Acts. So Luke does not want us to view, you know, his gospel as a story about Jesus and Acts as a story about the church, even though in some senses it is. Instead, he appears to view Luke as part one of the work of Christ and Acts as part two of the work of Christ. First, by way of the cross. Second, by way of the spirit and the witnesses, the progress of the gospel and the growth of the church. So first, Jesus gave his life. Then he gives us his power. So, quick word about the title of this book. Um, The title in one of the old kind of um, main manuscripts that is like wonderfully preserved Codex Sinaiticus um, dates to 4th century BC or not BC, AD, sorry um, Acts in, Greeks, in Greek it's praxis um, the Acts of who? so the traditional title and maybe your Bible says this the ESV says it this way um, since the 2nd century is the Acts of the Apostles but is that accurate? Again, from what we've already seen and what we've been talking about. Should it be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's what Jesus began to do and teach, and now Jesus is going to continue to be at work. Is it the Acts of Jesus? So I think if we take all this into consideration, the Acts of Jesus Christ by his Spirit through his apostles would be closer. You know, think Matthew 16. I will build my church. Jesus said that. And yet... Even that isn't quite accurate because the sovereign father is clearly at work in the book of Acts. And so much of the work that is done is done by not just the apostles, but ordinary believers like you and me, the witnesses. So here we are, Luke's sequel to his first work, his gospel account. The story continues to be continued. It's a story about a kingdom. Point number two. Look at verse three. So Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So let's just stop here. It's so easy to get like callous to this, to take it for granted, to assume it, and for it not to just land on us with wait, the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. Like, without a risen Jesus and thus a soul-saving cross, the kingdom and the mission don't exist. There's no good news to spread. The church doesn't even make any sense. So the resurrection is everything. So there's a little video. Don't usually do this, but I think it's fitting here. Um, probably created to be used on Easter, which it would be fitting. Um, It's like 90 seconds long, so let's just play that so that um, we feel the weight that we should feel as we see him presenting himself alive to them.
This is what they felt like when it happened. And today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. Don't you want it to be that real? So we see here that Jesus appeared a number of times to his disciples alive over the period of 40 days. Luke's the only one that tells us that it was 40 days before he ascended for good to the Father. These were not gullible people because they lived in a pre-scientific age. They didn't expect a resurrection. They were hesitant to believe it. Remember doubting Thomas. So he appeared to them like how kind and merciful and gracious of Jesus was this by many proofs, like many times. We can see a short list in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes to them, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive. So go ask them. Though some have fallen asleep, died, euphemism for death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely board on the Damascus road, he appeared also to me. We also know that he appeared to the women at the tomb and to Mary Magdalene. And then think of how he appeared to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That was a convincing proof, wasn't it? This language of verse 3. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs. Their hearts were burning as he was preaching the Old Testament and showing how it all pointed to him. How the Christ had to suffer. And those two, on the road to Emmaus, went back to Jerusalem, found the eleven, and those who were with them, and said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told their story. And as they're talking, Jesus appears and stands among them. And they're all just like freaked out. They think they see a ghost. You know, Steve read this earlier. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands, my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And they were disbelieving for joy and were marveling. And then he says, I mean, what would you expect... Do you have any fish? <laughs> like, I want to give you another convincing proof. Like, what did they expect? I mean, uh, like, is it going to just, like, drop on the floor? Is it, you know? No, he wasn't an apparition. This isn't a hallucination. Give him a piece of fish. He eats it. How about that for a convincing proof? He appeared to Peter and the disciples by the sea. They hadn't caught anything. He told them to throw the nets on the other side, and they could, couldn't even haul it in. There were so many fish. When they get to land, they see that Jesus already fixed them breakfast. 
has this conversation with Peter where he restores him. You know, there were three denials, and then there's three, Peter, do you love me more than these? That was a convincing proof. So what was the question rising in the minds of the disciples now that Jesus has appeared to them repeatedly, alive? Verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because, you know, we've got the sequel here, but now we've got this story about a kingdom. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? Has the end come? Like, is the day of the Lord here? Their expectation of the kingdom coming was judgment on all of the enemies and full and final deliverance for God's people. Set up the kingdom literally, politically, on earth right now. Israelites had great expectations regarding the kingdom of God. David Peterson summarizes it well when he says, this terminology came to be particularly associated with Israel's hope for an ultimate and decisive manifestation of God's rule in human history. And Israel is still under the thumb of Rome at the time. I mean, while Jesus was on earth, he's teaching, he's working miracles, he's casting out demons. Many people thought he was the Messiah, right? So they expected the king to come in its fullness, like imminently. Back in Luke 19, 11, we read, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So their expectations were off, they were misguided, and here the apostles still have those expectations, even after the resurrection. I mean, in some senses, I think we need to almost sympathize with them. Um, we see it, you know, much clearer in hindsight, but you can hardly blame them. Just one example, like one text um, that would have shaped their expectations. Think of Isaiah 11. You can either turn there or it's going to be on the screen here. Isaiah 11. It's a little bit long, but we're going to read through it just Pay attention. Think about this is part of the mental furniture of their expectations as it relates to the coming of the kingdom of God, when God's going to establish his eternal kingdom. So Isaiah 11, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's kingly line. This is a king and a kingdom that we're talking about. And a branch from its roots, his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Again, you can see why Jesus was like fitting the bill. He's the one. He's the one. No pause, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And again, no big pause. When he comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fat and calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Like, boom, it's all going to happen. So, okay, 
we thought that your death on the cross like dashed our hopes, but now you're alive, so are you going to do it now? Like, going to bring it now? Even the guys on the road to Emmaus, they were talking. Jesus comes up. What were they saying? We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They're thinking of political dominion, immediate earthly kingdom. And their hopes, in a sense, are revived because Jesus is alive. They're trying to process this. Is now the time? So Jesus replies, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he tells them that they're going to receive power and be his witnesses. What's the logic there? What's the implication? What's he saying? What's he getting at? How is the kingdom going to come? Jesus is saying, through you. As his disciples are his witnesses near and far. That's how the kingdom will come, how it will spread throughout the whole earth. It's a little bit of helpful application, I think, here. John Stott writes this. He says, For Christ's kingdom, while not incompatible with patriotism, tolerates no narrow nationalisms. By the way, he wrote this like 40 years ago. In case anyone thinks that, you know, he just wrote it, he's dead. Um, like as a result of some recent political happenings. Christ's kingdom, while not incompatible with patriotism, tolerates no narrow nationalisms. He rules over an international community in which race, nation, rank, and sex are no barriers to fellowship. So listen, none of Christ's followers should be more concerned about earthly elections and the future of America than they are about God's kingdom coming and about our faithfulness to the mission and our witness in 2024 and beyond. So our primary allegiance is King Jesus and our primary concern is the spread of God's kingdom. So if if believers are more preoccupied with an election and all the election run-up and drama than they are with God's kingdom and their witness, that would be to be as misguided as the apostles are here. And I'm not saying that the 2024 election doesn't matter. It does. But relative to our mission of being witnesses of King Jesus to our neighbors and the nations, the 2024 election is a petty thing. I didn't hear any amens. Okay, we'll keep going. <laughs> but I will say one more thing. If you are prone, especially, I think this is for all of us, but if you're prone to getting sucked into the news cycle, like especially in the run-up to the election, what if, what if Christians were known to be <laughs> as focused, let's just start there, as focused on the good news as much as the election news. Wouldn't it be fitting, though, for us to be more focused on the good news than on the election news? Not just 
studying the good news, but also sharing the good news. Again, John Stutt, he summarizes it well. It's important to remember that his promise that they would receive power was part of his reply to their question about the kingdom. For the exercise of power is inherent in the concept of a kingdom. But power in God's kingdom is different from power in human kingdoms. The reference to the Holy Spirit defines its nature. The kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit, not by force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. At the same time, in rejecting the politicizing of the kingdom, we must be aware of the opposite extreme, of super-spiritualizing it, as if God's rule operates only in heaven and not on earth. The fact is that although it must not be identified with any political ideology or program, it has radical political and social implications. Kingdom values come into collision with secular values, and the citizens of God's kingdom steadfastly deny, deny to Caesar the supreme loyalty for which he hungers, but, but which they insist on giving to Jesus alone. Amen? Amen? Like, don't you want the kingdom to come? Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And that was just the beginning. It will come through us as we are his witnesses. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, all the peoples, and then, and only then, will the end come. Like, we have a mission that has to be completed before he will return. And to be his witnesses, we're going to need power, right? Point number three, the power. Look at verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. It's one way to describe what's coming, this power that's coming. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you remember back in Luke 3 when John the Baptist was on earth and he's got all this following and he's baptizing people, baptism of repentance to prepare them. They're getting ready to meet God. And then he says, I'm not the Messiah. I baptize you with water, but one is coming who's much greater than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then look down at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So like, I don't know about you, aren't you glad for this? Like that mission is daunting. It's overwhelming, the mission and the calling. We need power, we need help, we need enablement, we need equipping. And it's the triune God of the universe who's behind us to empower us for his mission. The Spirit is the promise of the Father. And then the Savior Son is with us. If you remember Matthew's account of Jesus' parting words, what did Jesus promise us? All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples. I'm behind you. All the authority in heaven and on earth is behind you. Belongs to me. I'm here to empower you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As you go to the end of the earth, I will be with you to the end of the age. Like I can't tell you how many times those verses, those promises, all authority, and I'm with you to the end of the age, have gotten me over the hump to start a gospel conversation with someone when I wanted to chicken out or just kind of like, ah, I don't know what to say. Okay, well, Lord, I know you want me to have a conversation with this person. I want to share Christ with them. I don't know how to do it. Help me, but I know you're with me. All authority, you're with me. Okay, boom, open your mouth. Father is giving the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Son has all authority. He's with us. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. Like, that's us, little ones. We're weak. But he is strong. And we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and clothed with power from on high. Because the Holy Spirit has come upon us and dwells within us. So the kingdom, that's what this is all about, and the power. The power is for the kingdom, for the spread of the kingdom. Of course we're weak. Who's sufficient for these things, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians? None of us. But the triune God is conspiring together to empower us, us, his weak and adequate people. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom, the wisdom of God, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So, that's the power. What is the purpose of this power? We've already alluded to it, but look at verse 8 so that we see it clearly and explicitly. The purpose of this power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's the purpose, to be his witnesses. The power is for the purpose. The power is that we might be witnesses, his witnesses. So if our identity is witnesses, if you think about it, this actually points to the fact that the heart of the gospel is news, not advice. You're to be witnesses. You have seen things and heard things that have been done and said. You don't need to go and give advice to everybody. You need to go and be my witnesses. The gospel is not about, well, you should do this and probably do that and do this other thing. It's not about don't do this and don't do that. You better not do this and oh, one more thing. The gospel is about done. 
It's about it is finished. It's about news. It's not about what you have to do ultimately, but about what has been done. That is the center and heart of the gospel. Because the story is that there is a king who made everything and made subjects to rule in his stead, in his image, but we all rebelled and turned against him. Adam and Eve started it off, and we've all done it ever since. We're just born spring-loaded to rebel. We want to be our own little gods and kings. We want to sit on the throne of our lives. And the king is the judge. And he doesn't give his law to destroy our freedom, but rather to protect our freedom and safety and happiness, but we don't believe him. And we've all rebelled. We've fallen short, woefully short. We're all guilty of breaking God's law all the time. We're all accountable to him. Our conscience bear witness. Our guilt bears us witness. His law is stamped on our hearts. Our sin separates us from God. He's holy. We're not. We're all in deep trouble. If the gospel's going to be good news to you, and then to somebody else through you, you first have to accept the bad news about yourself. We need to know our need. Like, how can I be right with God? How can I be forgiven and cleansed? How can atonement be made for my sins? How can I be at peace with him and reconciled to him? Like, lots of people try to be religious to atone for their own sins, to quiet their own conscience by doing some good things. Like, self-salvation projects abound. They're all ladders to the sky that lean on nothing. All the world's religions are variations on this theme. Ladder to the sky. Be good enough, do the right things, you'll reach heaven, nirvana, whatever. What Jesus came to do is different. It's not about do, 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 and you'll climb the ladder to the sky. It's about done. God came down. He is the bridge to God. Instead of us trying to get up to him on a ladder, he came down on a rescue mission. He lived the life we failed to live. He died in our place for our sins as our substitute. He bridges that gap. So what do we do? We, we repent of our rebellion, of being rebels and revolutionaries, cosmic revolutionaries. He's declared amnesty if you repent and believe. And you can live. So Jesus is the way to the Father. Reconciliation with him. You turn from your web of ways and you trust in Jesus. Salvation is by grace, through faith. It's not our doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that nobody can boast. So we receive grace and forgiveness. So if being Jesus's witnesses is central to our mission we need to know what we're witnessing about like we need to know the gospel inside and out we should study the gospel the gospel's for christians it is everything to us jesus is everything to us and if it is not just like continually in our minds but also on our hearts like, 
how wonderful it is that this is true, how life-changing it is that it's true. Lord, don't let it just be info in my head. Change me and thrill me and make me grateful and happy and so thankful that this is all true. Then I'm going to be ready. You're not going to be able to shut me up, shut me up over what I've seen and heard. I'm going to be able to witness to these things. So it's that mission that is central to the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost that we would be Jesus' witnesses. If mission isn't central in our lives or in our church, then we're out of step with the Spirit because the Spirit was given for this purpose, you see? Where, then, are we supposed to be as witnesses? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is actually kind of like a rough outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 to 7 are focused in Jerusalem. That's where it all starts. Chapters 8 to 10 are focused in Judea and Samaria. And then 13 to 28 is the end of the earth. And it's not just a matter of geographical concentric circles that go out, although that's part of it. Samaria makes it clear that in addition to geographical widening circles, it's also cultural, ethnic, religious barriers. Samaritans were contemptible. They were half-breeds to the Jews. Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them, which is why the woman, in the well, woman at the well, that instance in John 4, is just like so shocking. The parable of the Good Samaritan was shocking. But if Jesus is the risen Lord of all, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his kingdom is going to come throughout the earth to the end of the earth, then that means that this good news is good news for all peoples. In fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6, I will make you, make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So finally, we turn to the question, verses 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we have many texts from the Gospels and elsewhere that he's going to come with the clouds and the holy angels when he returns, okay? So for them, the question the angels asked was, why do you stand looking up into heaven? <laughs> What's the implication? Get to work. Like, hey guys, you got a mission. What are you doing staring into the sky? So first they were to wait until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, would come upon them. Pentecost, we'll get there, chapter 2. They will be clothed with power from on high. Then they're going to go and be Jesus' witnesses. So the angels say, stop staring in the sky and go get ready. For us, the question's a little different. But I think it's probably something like this. 
what are we waiting for? We don't need to wait for Pentecost. Pentecost is in the past, and we know from elsewhere, we won't go text after text, but every genuine believer has been baptized with the Holy Spirit from conversion. He dwells within us. What are we waiting for? Are we actively, and I'm convicted, are we actively being King Jesus' witnesses in our Jerusalems, Judeas, Samarias? So in the past, over the years that I've been here at least, and I'm sure in many other ways prior to the time I was here, we've had different ways of like practically encouraging the body to be faithful witnesses. Remember, we prayed for a while for 50 and 500. Like, Lord, would you bring 50 people to faith through our ministry here locally and through our global partners, bring 500 people to faith. We had the 1002 prayer group. Maybe some of you are still doing this. At 1002, your little alarm goes off on your phone reminding you to pray like Luke 10, 2. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. So beseech the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers and send them out into his harvest field. Or, remember one year it was one in one. What if we all just prayed, I mean, let's just set the bar nice and low, which it would be crazy if the Lord answered this. Each of us prays and the Lord enables us to lead one person to Christ in one year. Like, imagine if the Lord just answered that prayer. That would be awesome. Like, Lord, answer that prayer. Let's pray that prayer. Pray for your five. We've done that, you know, or however many it is, you know. Like, do you have people that the Lord has placed around you and you are just going to keep asking and seeking and knocking until they come to faith and you're going to pray that the Lord will give you as many opportunities as possible to reach out to them and love them and point them to Jesus. One time we did a love your actual neighbors. Like, do you know your neighbors? Do you know the names of the eight closest houses to you? And if you know their names, do you know anything about them? If you know anything about them, have you ever talked to them about Jesus? Have you ever had them over? So what if you loved your, like, intentionally, strategically, thoughtfully, prayerfully loved your actual neighbors and got to know them and sought to share the gospel with them? Those are some of the ways that we've done that over the years. Like, listen, so there's no silver bullet phrase or catchy vision statement that I'm going to throw out here today that's going to change the world. But brothers and sisters, we need the Spirit of God to empower us. Let's ask for the Spirit of God to empower us. We need to study the gospel so that we can't shut up about what we've seen and heard. So let's study the gospel so that we can't shut up about what we've seen and heard. Lord, make it so real and wonderful to me. You know, the letter to Laodicea, I mean, it's just so, it could be lukewarm. We're not going to open our mouth. Repent. We need to ask and seek and knock. Last week, we looked at Luke 11. Your kingdom come, 
Like, if you're praying that, you are asking the Lord to equip you and make you a faithful witness because that's how it comes. So are you going to pray? Am I going to pray? Are we going to pray? Okay, Lord, your kingdom come and use me. I'm ready. Here I am. Send me. Do you believe that those who ask, receive? Who seek, find. Who knock, the door will be open. And then do you remember how that passage ends in verse 13? If you, though you're evil, (laughs) know how to give good things to your kids, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And what's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to empower us to be faithful witnesses. So listen, I hope there's a few amens to this. God's not done with Bethel. And if you think he is, I mean, if we think he is, I mean, collectively, should we have a members meeting after the service here and just say, hey, is is God done with Bethel? Like, and if, if we've got a quorum and, you know, X number of percentage over, then, you know, let's just close the doors and go do something else on Sunday mornings. Are our best days ahead or behind us? That will, in large part, be determined by how you and me seriously take this word, God's word, the gospel, what we pray for right now in our generation. So, brothers and sisters, let's ask and seek and knock that our best days, our most fruitful days, would be ahead of us for God's glory that his name would be hallowed and his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing.